We're looking at Valhalla, and I think the next move is we're really interested in, we purchased a 108-acre farm over there, uh-huh. and I'm going to do a different kind of model over there that will support this. We're going to actually try to start growing quite a bit of our own food for both this operation and a new operation over there. We're going to have a bit more of a restaurant and a pub down on the farm where food will be processed. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Jeff Pincero. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for coming on. So got to kick it back. I imagine you like hit the delivery room, threw on a board and just snowboarded out of there, right? I actually skied out, believe it or not. I was born before <laughs> the snowboarding started up, but yeah, yeah, I was born. Yeah, not quite with skis on. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, not a, you know, well-known ski spot. Although, you know, Red Gerard's from Cleveland. We got a few aces in there. What What is the closest ski resort to Cleveland? Well, I started at a little spot called Alpine Valley and a place called Boston Mills. And they're just small little ski hills in northern Ohio. And then we would get on a bus at like four o'clock in the morning and go to Peak and Peak or Holiday Valley and go there for a day and then get on a bus and drive back, get back at like nine o'clock at night. Nice. Yep. I've been there with Mountain High out of LA. Ate tons (laughs) of candy and chips. The whole time, yeah. it was like no parents, totally bananas, ski bus. You're really rushed cool. to get on the mountain. It's important. And yep. off the mountain. So take me back. So you're from Cleveland. Were your parents big athletics people? Were they big sports people? Not really. No, not really. Just regular middle class Clevelanders coming <laughs> up. My dad played golf. They played tennis and stuff. But sports weren't a super big deal. I played a lot of sports in high school in the early years coming up and yeah. enjoyed kind of being on teams and stuff like that. And which, ended sports, up, which sports? I played lacrosse and I wrestled and I tried them all. Really, I was uh, really terrible at playing basketball. Football wasn't really my thing. It was a little too. But I really like lacrosse. It's a really great game. Played some soccer. Awesome. Yeah, regular and, regular kid stuff. Yeah, and I'm always curious. Like, did you have like the what you want to be when you grow up thing going when you were like five six? Like, did you know? Did you have ideas of what you wanted to do? Yeah, apparently, if you ask my mom and my dad, they would say my dad was a food salesman and he got to sell potatoes as part of what he sold. So he was in Idaho because they grow a lot of potatoes there. And he bought a place in Sun Valley when I was a little child, one of the original kind of condos out there. So we used to load up from Cleveland and either drive or fly out to Sun Valley for all the Christmas and the summer breaks and spend a lot of time out there. And Uh I don't know if you know the history of Sun Valley that well, but it was founded by this guy, Averill Harriman. And he was this old German dude who came over and founded this really beautiful mountain in this amazing valley in Idaho. And he would like walk around with like the German coat, you know, and the embroideries on it. And it was kind of had a Bavarian flavor around there. And I remember yeah. telling my dad, he's like, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I was like, I'm going to be like that guy. I want to, I want to. Really? So it was yeah, that early. I said, I want to take people to the mountains. I want to do this kind of thing. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah, because you, you will get into it, but you ended up on such a unique path. And the idea that that could have happened as a, at a young age, it makes sense, but also surprising. <laughs> yeah, so, without, I don't have any embroideries or anything yet. We can make that happen, though. That, that can come. Right? <laughs> so how, like, did you stick with that path? Were you, like, fully focused on, like, I've got to run a mountain one day? Like, did you go through high school, college, all with that in mind? You know, I don't know. I went, I got to go to a, 
a high school in New Hampshire called Proctor Academy, and they really value the outdoors there, really a lot of experiential learning and all that kind of stuff. And I was captivated by forestry, making maple syrup, all that kind of stuff. Being from Cleveland, I thought it was really cool. They did it in Cleveland too, actually, but I I thought it was just really cool to be outside and learn from nature and do all that stuff. I really loved it. And then, you know, I got a chance to travel a little bit. And through that school, they had a program in Spain that you could go to your senior year. And I did that, kind of got to see the world a little bit. And we actually went to a ski resort when I was over there and checked it out. And just, uh, you know, we went around in New Hampshire and Vermont quite a bit on the weekends. And I really love the culture. I've always loved the culture of skiing and snowboarding and getting away from the city or wherever and going to the mountains and sharing a really great day. And then after high school, I ended up going to Colorado State and Uh uh, studied tourism and hospitality there and then ended up transferring to Lake Tahoe where there was actually a ski business management program at Sierra Nevada College and I went to that. So you really did, as you said, you knew from a young age you wanted to run a ski resort of some kind. I guess I did in retrospect. I guess I just, I always thought, why not? Like, why couldn't I do it? You know? I think that's, yeah. Yeah. No, you realize, I mean, you know this now too, but like, I think a lot of people realize when they hit a level of success that like, no one's that smart. Everyone's just figuring it out. And like, you just got to kind of be like, why not me and go for it? Yeah. Why not? Why not be the guy that doesn't know anything and learns everything along the way? Like none of us are born with all this knowledge. I, I think because that's everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. kind of kept putting one foot in front of the other and really loved being in Lake Tahoe and being able to learn there and actually focus on the ski business a bit, which was really just business. Really, it was just a business degree where you took financial and managerial accounting and like blah, 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 and business law. But it gave you a little taste of everything, you know, and I think that makes me a good CEO, president, founder dude now because I really can understand the pieces, but I'm not an expert at any of them. And I think college gave me that. And uh, I got to be a uh, I got to work in the industry a bit when I was there. So I got to be a rep for K2 back in the day. And I would like tune all the skis for the demos in Northern California and drive the truck around, you know, and do that stuff. Was that while you were in college? Uh, Yeah. And it was really cool because I got to do like pro ski races and collegiate ski races. And then also the regular demo days and, and the dealer demo days. So I really, my boss then was this really, really nice guy. And he took me under his wing and I worked really hard, but that was right when snowboarding started too. And since I was younger and I had snowboarded a bit and was kind of into it, and a lot of my friends were into it, I started doing a lot of the snowboard demos when it first started up. I'm curious, how'd you get into it? Because when it first started, it was like this rinky-dink little thing. I've heard a lot of stories. I wasn't there, but well, uh, I when watched it first the Jake Burton documentary, etc. That's a great documentary, by the way. It's awesome. <laughs> I think for me, it, it started at Squaw Valley and I was skiing. And I was a pretty, you know, I wasn't a great skier, but I had like, like every, like you guys, you know, like I could ski anything and it was really fun, but I broke my ankle under Siberia chair, jumping off a cat track into a mogul field. And so I was on crutches and I was walking to go give someone something in the parking lot or something. And this guy was in the back of a pickup truck with a bunch of Kemper snowboards. And he recognized me, he goes, what did you do to your ankle? And we started chatting and he goes, you know what? I'll pay you 50 bucks a day to sit in the back of this pickup truck and give these snowboards out to people and take their driver's license. And then put them back at the end of the day. So that was my first thing in snowboarding. And then that led to this job with K2 and doing a bunch of other stuff. So it was was a cool little thing. I'm curious about the snowboard thing. Did anyone ever not come back and you had to keep a driver's license? No. No, I was going to say, I've always never had to do that. I always had beers. (laughs) I always had beers and chips and stuff. So everyone wanted to come back. There you go. Smooth, yeah. Good spot in the parking lot, right? And nothing has changed. 
<laughs> I have suit now and a bigger, better parking lot. I park snow caps in the parking lot. And great charcuterie. Okay, so you, you start working for K2, snowboarding starts to take off. Did you ever think maybe I want to compete in this or like be a pro snowboarder? Not really. Like I was friends with a lot of guys that were chasing that dream and a lot of friends that were doing photography and making movies and all that stuff. And I think I was a little late to the game getting into it at that point. I was I didn't really grow up skateboarding every day or any surfing or any of that yeah. kind of stuff. And uh, I always really enjoyed going out with people and showing them the mountain. Like I really like that part, like knowing all the nooks and crannies and getting to go with the really good pro guys, but then going back with friends from out of town and stuff. I, I love going over to Utah and meeting friends over there and they'd show me around snowbird and, and play it. Like I really enjoy that whole part of snowboarding is so fun, you know? Yeah. No, hundred percent. The, the, uh, adventure side of it, so to speak. Absolutely. Uh, and we yeah. started getting into hiking into the backcountry even back then doing little hikes off of the highways like Mount Rose and Donner summit and gaining knowledge and experience and learning from others. And that whole journey started back then. And uh, that continues now for sure. Yeah. And so you, how long did you end up working for K2? A while. I was, I worked with those guys for like four or five years as it really got going and they had to step in bindings and they did all the stuff. And I, you know, I'm really grateful for the time that I was there, but as snowboarding started getting really big, I saw an opportunity there and, and I knew how my boss made his money and he, he wasn't a snowboarder. And I was like, well, how about you separate the snowboards out and give it to me and give me some goals. And I'll just go rep the snowboards independently of the skis and we can get them into skate shops and surf shops and not necessarily try to follow the same ski thing. And uh, they were kind of into it, but the it was like the better I saw early that as a rep, the better I did. And if I was riding the wave, the first thing the owners were going to want to do was cut the commission, yeah. you know, and I really didn't like those meetings and the negotiations and trying to stick up for myself with the old dudes. And so I kind of was like, maybe working for a big company isn't for me so much. Mm -hmm. And so I took a job with a smaller company out of Chico, California, like ultra rootsy homemade snowboard company and was like, all right, let's see if we can grow this into something bigger and ended up hiring, you know, with the help of the owners and everybody like Japanese distributors, Swiss distributors, South American distributors. We got an East Coast office and like we really grew that brand like maybe as big as it should have been. And that was super cool. That was three or four years. It was called Glissade Manufacturing and we made snowboards that were really long and damp and Uh super, super beautiful snowboards. And then we Uh made other snowboards called Crap that were, uh, we actually named snowboards Crap. Yeah. Yeah. So we did that. And we grew it. It was pretty rad. And same thing kind of started happening again where I wasn't really making any money, but putting a lot of time in as if I owned the company. And we started doing better. And then when it came to like salary discussions and all that stuff, I was just so uncomfortable. I'm a humble guy. I try to be, and I just don't, if I didn't, if, you know, it's weird, that stuff. And so yeah. at that point, I was like, I think I should try to be my own boss, maybe. And then... At least if I fail at something, I can go back and do this. I know I can do this. I like it. I like the relationships with the shop people and going to the mountain. And I love that lifestyle. So I figured I can always go back. And so through a crazy series of events, I started Baldface then. And with the absolute intention of falling on my face and failing. So you were working with the snowboard company in Tahoe still, right? Yeah, they were in Chico, Chico, California. Oh, they're in Chico. Those, Sorry, yeah, you said it. So you're in Chico, and then you just—I mean, with how you just went that, so then you just ended up in Nelson, British Columbia, and we're like, screw it, I'm buying a mountain. 
No, no, it wasn't that easy. It was my girlfriend in college who I fell deeply in love with. We were, we stayed together for like two or three years after college and we were going to get married and we ultimately decided maybe we shouldn't because she really wanted to go to India and go travel and go on a little bit more of a mystical journey and yoga and discovery. And I really felt like Lake Tahoe and getting into the Cascades was like everything I've ever looked for in my life I found there. It's incredible. And where you live is a, is a paradise, really, on Earth. And I so enjoyed exploring the Sierras and up into the Cascades that I felt like I had a whole lifetime right there. Uh, you know, I still, I think I'm the luckiest guy yeah. to be able to appreciate it at least as much as I do. I really do. And so we broke up and she went to India and I worked for the Glissade and was doing the thing. And then I decided I wasn't going to work for Glissade anymore and didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to start something. And I looked at my finances, which were not that good. And I was like, <laughs> you should go on a heli skiing trip before the whole shit house goes up in smoke. You know, I was like 27 <laughs> years old. I was like, this may, <laughs> I had like $13,000 in my bank account. And I was like, it's not that big a difference, you know? Yeah. So I booked a trip for 1800 bucks Canadian up to a, a heli ski lodge because her dad had built the heli ski lodge up in Lillooet. And so he got me a deal and I went up there and sure enough, he was there and we're buddies. And then I left that trip, which is a really big part of the story, the origin story too, because the trip was kind of weird. It was like, I had these pictures of shredding sick lines and sending it like Tom Bird off of things. And, you know, and then you get there and they're like, oh no, it's not like that. It was like how much vertical yeah. you get. And, and like, no, not over there, not over there. And so I, I was a little bummed on the whole experience, to tell you the truth, because I just felt like I wasn't really able to get out of it what I was expecting to get out of it. And so little wheels started turning, and I went down to Lake Tahoe again. Actually, I didn't make it to Tahoe. I made it to Seattle and then drove over and saw Paula again. Because he told me, sorry, Paula's dad on that heli ski trip told me that Paula was in Nelson as the editor of the newspaper. And I had never been to Nelson. So I drove to my friend's house and talked it over with him and ended up driving out to Nelson. I, we saw each other and it was like the violins and the butterflies. We hadn't seen each other for a couple of years. And it was uh, crazy. And so I left and was like, I got to find a way to be with Paula up there in Nelson because Nelson is dope. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to start my own company. And I was talking with a friend of mine and he was like, have you ever been cat skiing? And I was like, no. And he's like, I've been trying to go cat skiing up by Nelson. And there's only six places and they're all booked out three years in advance. You can't, you literally can't get into these places. And that You're got doing me a good sign for a little more. And so yeah. we, we, uh, I took a mortgage out on my house. I, I think I got $52,000 because the uh -huh. real estate market was going kind of crazy then. I had bought a little house with the money that I had made snowboarding. Not snowboarding in K2 and stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I had a little nest egg. So I bought a little house and it was going bananas. And so I took a yeah. home equity loan out and yeah. I had $52,000. And I was like, all right, I'm ready to just lose this money and fall on my face <laughs> and then go suck it up and go get a job from some yeah. guy in a suit in Seattle or something. Right. Yeah. So we went in man and me and Frapsy and Paula, we went in and we just started putting the pieces to the puzzle together as cheaply as we could do it. And with as much like personal interaction and talking with people and driving over and having meetings so and everything. You just, you, and this was all sparked. Like you wanted to go be with Paula 
you like skiing or snowboarding too. There weren't a lot of cat outfits and you just went screw. Like, was it like, I'm not, did you go check those out or you just like, I'm in, I'm going to do this. Like, was it immediately you were committed? It clicked because I was like, I watched snowboarding go from, I'm just going to throw numbers out. But like the first year they did snowboards, they sold like $30,000 worth of snowboards, you know? Yeah. The second year they sold like $300,000 worth of snowboards. The third yeah. year they sold like $900,000. This is just NorCal, right? Yeah. So um, I came up here as a snowboarder, and there's a great snowboarding culture in Nelson. And, right. uh, I mean, Whitewater is an incredible culture and ski area. It's a gem yeah. and has been forever. And it just clicked. I was like, well, what if I was a guy? Like, what if it was my friends that were actually coming yeah. out? And we were jumping off of cliffs and, like, cheering each other on and taking a minute to hit a method off of this thing and taking yeah. a picture here and there and like having a day in the mountains with, with your yeah. crew, you know? And so I just kind of started thinking like, I don't, everyone had those sun toe watches then, you know, yeah. the big huge ones with the two buttons. And it was everyone, it was all about how much vertical you got. It's mm-hmm. all anybody cared about how much vertical you got. And yeah. I was like, that's it. I don't care how much vertical you get and you can go wherever I want you to shred when you're here. Not arm snow. And I just kind of kept putting one foot in front of the other with that philosophy and with my buddy Jim helping me and Paula. uh, And we kind of just started creating all these things at the same time and getting our ideas together. And then next thing, you know, like Buffery comes into my life. He's a, he's a, he's been my mentor the whole time. So John Buffery's a Canadian ski guide of international acclaim somehow. Mm -hmm. He saw me out there just out in the snow every day and at the coffee shop and he knew I was doing something and he introduced himself to me and started actually putting me on the path to making better decisions in the backcountry. And (laughs) through that relationship, he brought Craig Kelly into my life and Craig was this unbelievable guy who I guess the best way to put it is he was the greatest snowboarder in the world, maybe Mm -hmm. still is, and a, a, a forefather of our, our culture. And he was the of, biggest in Burton too, right? Like Craig was literally yeah. the guy for snowboarding at that time. Absolutely. And he walked away from competitive competition and walked into the backcountry. And somehow I happened to be standing there. And yeah. we struck up a friendship based on this kind of idea of like having a place like bald faces. And Craig was like one of those guys that was kind of competitive, obviously. But, you know, he would beat you to the top every time you went touring with him or mountain biking or whatever. But he was always super encouraging and killer about it. And you felt like there was plenty of room at the top when Craig was there. And he put that into me and into my heart that there's like plenty of room for everybody. And so I think with that, you know, Craig coming to me, Mr. Nobody and like putting his time into the project and coming out with me and sharing everything he had learned at Island Lake and these other places, it was like unbelievable. And I recognized it as it was happening. You know, I was like, I was like, you know, I'm a guitar player. And and at the time I was playing a lot of Bob Marley and reggae. And I was like, it's like Bob Marley showing up in your living room to have a jam session, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so the inspiration was huge. And then we ended up getting our tenure, which is a crazy process. How'd you get, how do you like go, this is where we're going to do this. Well, we looked at a bunch of different places all over British Columbia as we were based out of Nelson and uh, really, really loved the town of Nelson for sure. And so I wanted to do something around here and we kept flying around and driving up drainages and going touring and checking it out. And then when Craig and Buff came on, they really were helping me like look for specific things that help make a cat skiing operation or a heli skiing operation. We didn't know what it was going to be then. Yeah. But we kind of zeroed in on the cat skiing and 
And if you've been here, you know why. Like, I really, really love the whole thing that we do where you're in the cat with your buddies for 15 yep. minutes and then you're shredding and then you're 15 minutes and you got the music and the sandwiches. Yep. I just love the whole vibe. And so we yep. decided to go into that. And uh, this place, this place is a really magical place. And when you look at mm -hmm. the terrain in British Columbia, it's quite jagged and gnarly and difficult to to travel in and that's why heli skiing is so well suited up here but this particular mm -hmm. piece of terrain is like all the ridges we were able to build cat roads on that go to flat valleys in the bottom so we don't have to ski each other's tracks and have pickups that are like too congested and that's yeah. pretty unique and we also have it's not quite as high elevation which is actually good because we're not as susceptible to wind and sun as our sister operation over at Valhalla which is a little bit higher and just a super rad place but something about Baldface and all the all the little ridges and nooks and crannies um we get great snow here and we hold it for a long time and we can access it really efficiently with the cats so yeah you know, we recognized all these things after touring it and really checking it out. We applied 1998 for the tenure, and that process was incredible because it involved a lot of donut bribes to bureaucrats and showing up <laughs> in the morning and making our problem their problem first thing. And I really loved working. Did you with have any? Curious, did you have any issues being an American trying to do this too? Did that cause problems for you? Yeah, for sure. It did. It yeah. did. But I think I was just, I don't know. I wasn't really going to hear it. Like, I know I'm a good person and I'm not up here to try to screw anybody over. And I know that I could create what we created right now. And I just had to, if anything, it made me have more integrity and be more careful of how I step through the process than if yeah. I wasn't having to do that. And then, you know, ultimately I ended up with the greatest woman in the country as my wife. So I can understand why they, you know. I won the deal, and now I'm a Canadian, and I got all the I, I got it. So it's all good. Yeah, and yeah. she was instrumental in getting this all going too, wasn't she? Huge. Yeah. yeah, she was the she was the step leader to the lightning bolt for sure. Yeah, That's Paul is awesome. a gem. My, so, wife is a, my wife is an absolute partner. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. And she was great to hang out with a few weeks, a month ago, or was a month, little over a month ago. And then, so 1998, you get this established, you get your charter, so to speak, and then so, right there. You got your cats no, ready and we didn't pulled out. To do it. So, you know, my $56,000 home equity loan by this yep. point, I don't know if you remember the, what did they call it? The uh, stated mortgage income crisis. I don't, I never heard it called that, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was, everybody was lying about being an entrepreneur yep. and then any bank would loan you anything on any asset. So I had borrowed against my house from different lenders so that I could keep bald face going and i had just leveraged that house to like its maximum maximum amount yeah. and i was probably i was getting pretty deep into this and i was not super aware of how deep i was getting into it and really how <laughs> precarious the situation i was putting myself in and yeah. we got the tenure and then the foo fighters came on nate and dave wrote us some checks to help us buy our first cat so Which I've is, heard that part of the story, but did, did are they big skiers, snowboarders, or are they just like, this is fucking cool we're at? Well, Dave, Dave dated Tina Vasich and was kind of part of that early MTV Utah culture as he was kind of transitioning out of Nirvana and starting Foo and all that stuff. And then, uh, so yeah, he knows what's up. And then okay. uh, Nate is from Seattle and is a full-on snowboarder. Like, he's cool. great. He's a really good snowboarder. So... Yeah. Um, through my friend Arlie, they came in and that was like another 
moment with Craig where I was like, are you kidding me? I, right now I'm, right, I'm rolling. <laughs> I'm totally bullshitting my way through this and I'm rolling with Paula, Buffery, Craig, and now the Foo Fighters are investing. I was like, yeah. this is getting crazy. So we bojangled that thing together for a winter and Craig guided and Buff guided and I helped and, and we built a geodesic dome back there that we lived in and people would meet us there in the morning. It was pretty hippie. And then so they just come up for the day. It wasn't like an overnight thing at that point. Well, we had an old forestry boat. You'd meet at the Prestige Inn at six yep. o'clock in the morning, go across, get in the truck, drive the truck up to the snow line, get your beacons on, get in the cat, drive up, and then go shredding and then do it in reverse on the way out. We did that for three years. Three years oh, wow. we did that. Yeah, I was a lot tougher back then. So yeah. we did that for three years. And then we were like, all right, let's build this lodge. 2002, we're like, we, we, we've done it. We, we should be able to get some debt. You know, let's go find an investor and like do this. So I wrote the business plan with Jim and we, we started circling it around, but none of our, yeah, maybe nobody, it wasn't that great business plan. But then to get out from underneath all these mortgages I had, I kept remodeling my house. And as I was remodeling my house, the, the electrician, Brian, the tuna man, always was like, he was from Long Island, and he was like, tell me about what you're doing up there. What is it? What is it going to be? Have a, a helicopter? What are you going to do? How are you going to get there? What are you gonna be? So we were always talking about it, and and I gave him a, he asked me for a copy of my business plan. He was like, I do all these rich guys over in Incline, man. I, I know some guys, man. Give me a copy of that business plan. It's a good thing. You're a good kid. Like, let's, come on. So I gave it to him, and he put it on this guy's desk in Incline, who had yeah. had a software company that he had a home run on in the uh, late 90s. And he was sitting pretty in Incline and just kind of into fast boats and experiences and climbing Kilimanjaro and, you know, yeah. how entrepreneurs do when they get their first big score. He's doing that. I think he, he was driving an Austin Martin or something around. And it ends up, this guy, Rob, is a super good dude. He's, like, from upstate New York. And that's when we got our first kind of, like, real investor. And Rob was great. And he, we had about a $3.5 million plan to build a lodge up here. And Rob was great because he was like, let's do the work. So we stroked it all out on the spreadsheets, three, five-year performance. Like, really, he really helped me, you know, say, if you want to do this, you better do the homework, man. You better understand the nuts and bolts of this business if you want a guy like yeah. me doing that. So Rob was a great mentor originally and, and his wife. And then 9-11 happened, right? So literally, we're building the road with an excavator up to the lodge. We have like $300,000 in deposits for the year. I got a German ski club set up to do every thursday friday saturday sunday and i'm like great i, I booked the whole season to those guys yeah. and 9 11 happened and we were like tripping out like the 15th comes and the german tour groups like we're out and then <laughs> rob our partner's like i don't know what's going on but i'm not writing any three and a half million dollar checks for any startups right now wow he's like world is a really weird place and i'm not comfortable and i think you guys should make a pivot yeah. so we hustled and we changed our plan and we built the timber frame that you see today, the original timber frame there. And we brought a bunch of ATCO trailers up, which are like portable units that use in mining and logging yep. camp. Brought a kitchen trailer up, hired our first staff, trained it and up. Just to trained say, it uh, you basically thought you had three and a half million dollars coming in. The guy just went, never mind. And you pivoted yeah. quickly. You're still going to see this through. It's not going to, I think you mentioned a while ago when we were talking, you had this plan for like multiple hot tubs and like this crazy oh, luxurious. Oh, yeah. Like there was a wildlife viewing tower in the middle love it. It was going to be amazing yeah. that much. It was yeah. going to be amazing, right? Yeah. Yep. And then... Yeah. Uh, but you pivoted you quickly. You just went, all right, screw it. And we're just going to build this A-frame and this, uh, get these trailers up here. Let's go. What really mattered 
was coming back to that core principle and saying, I want to bring people snowboarding in the mountains. Whether they have a hot tub or flooring or siding on the lodge, it doesn't matter. We are here for the experience and the powder and the connection. And I just focused on that. And I always do when things get wobbly, you know? Yep. Yep. No, that's great. So we built that place and we we started that first season and it was super magical because we were like naming every runner. We were starting. It was crazy because we had done it as a day off, but we built a bunch of cat roads and we were like ready to go. And Craig's here and everything. And we got going and it was great. And then Craig was killed in an avalanche uh, January 20th of that year. And that was like another moment of like, whoa, you, you know, people can die doing this stuff, not just people, but like my mentor mm-hmm. and, you know, like, geez, do I really want to do this? And Jesus, you know, but really just doubled down again and really was like, yeah, it could be, could be a game ender, I guess, but it's also like Craig wouldn't quit. And, and, I don't know. I've just had this great little voice over my shoulder the whole journey where it's like, you can do it. There's room at the top. Like, don't give up. Like, don't give up. Like, just that's not an option. You just got to keep plowing ahead. And I mean, I think of all the good times, all the healing, all the connection we've created with all the customers and the staff since this passing. And I know it validates it validates all these hard times, you know? Yeah. 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 So, you know, then we... Let's see, we had the Echo trailers. This is like the longest origin story ever. You can just tell me that. No, you'd be surprised. You're doing great. <laughs> All right. So we had the uh, we had the Echo trailers there. We ran with 24 people for four years. Didn't make any money. Really a struggle, but a lot of fun when you're a young guy just drinking beer every night and going to the morning every day. Like, it was good. And... Um, then in 2006, we decided to rearrange how the Akos were and put one big roof over them and then uh-huh. build these independent chalets so that people could have their own little chalet up here. And we undertook that in 2006. And that was a crazy summer building those places. And yeah. we got it done. And then uh, we opened up for business. And right after Christmas, our lodge got the Norwalk uh, virus, which is like the cruise ship virus where... People get it and they're sick for about 24 hours, a lot of barfing, and then they're better. But it, it's something that goes around old folks' homes and cruise ships. Got it. And it was brutal. It was awful. Yeah. And customers were so pissed off. And like this, st- it was yeah. just every day, it was just, it was like awful. It was awful. Yeah. We ended up hiring a, a guy named Carlos Gonzalez, who's a Cuban epidemiologist. We got him off of a US <laughs> aircraft carrier and flew him here. And he was finally the one who got rid of it for us by creating protocols that we still have today. As far as our housekeeping, we mix our own chemicals. We have a schedule that we do it on. We like, we isolate people. We know all this stuff. And the fast forward to that is. Did you ever think you were going to have to do that? Like, I mean, obviously COVID was a thing, but like be an epidemiology expert too, because you were managing these people. (laughs) I never did. But the second that COVID started, I knew exactly what this was and I knew exactly yep. what it was going to mean to our industry and to us. And I, I was no, nothing has been a shock in it because I, I learned all that through Norwalk. So, yep. you know, life has a way of teaching you things before you need to know you need them. And uh, yep. that was a good example, but that was a real hard year. Like, uh, but we got through that. And then 2011, we were doing a photo shoot for Teton Gravity Research. We built the largest gap jump ever built. Tom Wallach and Sage and all these guys came out to shoot it. And as we were building it, it was a massive May that year. Massive. Meters and meters of springs. And one night while we were watching the Canucks hockey game. Oh, I guess along the way, I should say that at each of these things, we had a kid. So 
yeah, each one of these years, we seem to have a child as well. So uh, Estelle was born when we built the lodge. Lucy was born when we built the cabins. And then in 2011, in this huge March, or huge May, on Mother's Day, right after we had twins, yeah. two weeks before then or so, two months before then, the lodge collapsed. And we lost the whole lodge. Because of so, the snow that just came down in spring and just demolished it? It ended up that um, there was some errors made when it was when that roof was built with the engineering and this and that and everyone, you know, we dealt with it. But yeah, the roof failed because it, the snow, there was more snow on it. Than and no one was hurt, right? No one was in it. No, but we were all there and it was crazy to watch the yeah. building collapse. Like, oh, yeah. it's like an explosion. It was nuts. So anyways, uh, also Travis Rice had entered my life and wanted to do this new contest called the Supernatural, which was going to involve quite a involved two-year summer build. And so I was standing there with all this opportunity and these four kids and my lodge had collapsed in May. Yeah. And that was a moment where I was like, this is over. You are done. And there was like two days where I really thought it was, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And then one of my buddies, Terry Maglio, just started driving an excavator up the road and clearing the road out. And he's, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, how the fuck are you going to rebuild this place if you don't get the road open right now and start getting going on demo? Like, let's go. And like the team came together and we just started freaking hammering it together and like going to the architect's office and being like, I need yeah. this today and going into the building inspector and being like, we need every day. And we got that thing done. The lodge, you guys stay in the new lodge and it's beautiful. And it's a huge upgrade over what we had and insurance paid for a lot of it, but we also had to take on some new partners and, uh-huh. uh, we got to showcase that to the world with Supernatural, which was televised on NBC. And that took us from kind of sold out status to like good luck getting in this place status. And yeah. we've been there for 10 years now. And uh, yeah. I could fill in a lot in that origin story. But okay. there you go. We just did another <laughs> yeah. collection last week. We distilled it down into 40 minutes. I, I wouldn't think that your entire life story would fit. But uh, so at this point, the one other part of that is. You had all these different investors coming over time, and then recently, cool. not recently, but the past few years, you had someone come in and take them all and just become your one partner, right? Yeah, I did. It's a really cool story. One of the I, I visited Island Lake once for two days before yeah. I had built this place, and on that trip, Craig invited me over there because he was a he was a part owner over there, and he introduced me to this fella, and he said, "I don't know if this guy will ever be your partner or anything, but like." You should have a relationship with him because he's a really good guy and he's a really successful entrepreneur and he will always give you great advice. And we started inviting him out when we opened because he lives in Spokane. And so this this guy, my partner's name is Dan. He's been coming here since the first day we were open. And he's been the guy on the phone when I was mortgaging my house, when I was taking on partners, when I was looking at debt, asking what personal guarantees were and what that really meant. Dan has been so generous as an entrepreneur with me and patient, and he's always been there for me. And he's included me on things. He's an investor in the Yellowstone Club, and not included me like I'm not an owner. Yeah. I've never been there. But as that was developing, it was like part of our conversation as a learning thing, you know, and so lucky to have him in my life. And then finally in 2000 and something along the way, I got a couple job offers that were kind of out of left field. And I was really considering it because the money was really good, but it was down in California. And it was really exciting jobs. And I called them up and it opened up this discussion where I have eight, I had eight partners at that point, varying from a half a million to $100,000, you know, over the years, all friends, dear friends, everybody just wanted to shred. 
And as soon as we started making a little bit of money and I had four kids and I was like, I think I need to start talking about me a little bit in this conversation. The conversation got weird. Like I was saying before, I'm a terrible advocate for myself. So I was trying to navigate that with Dan and he was like, it sounds like your business is ready for just a consolidation of all this stuff so that you can concentrate on like really building this place out and reaching your full potential. So we made a deal that if I could get everybody together and make a square deal that he would consolidate it all. So he did that. And then he's been my partner since we did that. I think it's been like six years now. And that's been a great relationship. Yeah. Now I was fortunate enough to meet him in 2020. Seems like a great guy. Um, He is. Yeah. And so a couple more questions for you. Number one, what's next? I know you just did Valhalla, but like, what do you, what is the future of Ballface? And the future of Jeff? We're just getting into the whole talk about what happens after Jeff at Ballface and all these things. So we're kind of starting to talk about succession a little bit. Nothing soon, but we're looking at uh, Valhalla. And I think the next move is we're really interested in, we purchased a 108 acre farm over there. Uh And I'm going to do a different kind of model over there that will support this. We're going to actually try to start growing quite a bit of our own food for both this operation and a new operation over there. We're going to have a bit more of a restaurant and a pub down on the farm where food will be processed and we'll have a nice big kitchen there, but then we can send a lot of that up here, send a lot of raw materials up here to Baldface. Uh-huh. And then we're going to have a more like executive houses down there that we could use a little more without the restriction of having to have a 48 person lodge. Like it's hard to run right. this place if I only have eight people here, you know? So, you know, we've learned some really cool lessons. I'm glad because the location of this place makes it full all the time. But down there, I think I could have more year-round business. So, yeah, it's really fun using everything I've learned and trying to start applying it to Valhalla. And then then I'm on a learning kick. I'm always on a learning kick, right? I can't stop reading and and doing things. But currently, I'm reading a book. It's called The Mother Tree by a woman named Suzanne Samard. I'd highly recommend it. And it's all about mycelium. And the health of the forest, and I don't know how much you know about this, all this stuff, but mycelium is the fabric that ties everything together. It's the mushroom-like fungus that grows in the soil in the forest, and we've been really damaging it, but with industrial logging over the years. And the cool thing is, and I recommend everybody listening to it, like that book and the story of mycelium is the only story of hope really that I've heard in a long time, because mycelium, I really think, I'm going to sound like a hippie from Nelson, but like... This is the cure to the to a lot of these environmental problems that we have right now, in addition to reducing. But this is how you can resequester the carbon into the soil and create food for plants out of This is how you do it. And so I'm working on our land over there at Valhalla, and I'm working on a project here at Baldface where we're going to try to bring back some more traditional logging techniques that don't damage the forest floor so much, horse logging uh-huh. and aerial logging. And I'm really going to start spending some time and energy really exploring what that means and trying to invest in our local area and the concept of trying to uh, realize that logging is kind of part of what humans have decided is acceptable, but there's much better ways that we could do it. And maybe I could use my influence and my place here and stuff to just be an example of how we could maybe start to do it right. So I'm really excited to start learning more and doing more in that field too. That's amazing. That's awesome. And so last question for me, uh, for someone trying to pursue their dreams, I mean, you're living the dream. You got to go take people and guide them in a mountain and live in one of the coolest places in the world. What would be your one piece of advice to that person? Just whatever that dream might be, what's the one piece of advice you either wish you heard or you did hear? My one piece of advice is it's way harder than you think it's going to be. Don't quit when you think you failed because you're not dead till you're dead. Don't be afraid. And you're way stronger than you think you are. 
and you can weather a lot heavier things than you think you're, you know, than you think you can. So a lot of that inner confidence, a lot of that inner fire and a lot of that, that just dog determined, like, don't give up too many entrepreneurs quit because they're afraid they're going to fail. And I say fail, fail, because yep. that last dollar may be the dollar that turns it around. So don't give up $2 short. That's yep. my advice. Amen. Well, Jeff, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.